All right, here we are. Thank you all very much for joining us today. We are going to have a conversation with Rebecca Blythe, Vancouver City Councillor. Um, a couple housekeeping items. Uh, of course, a disclaimer. So we obviously have a real estate platform, but we do not provide any advice. You should always speak to a professional to get advice for any investment decisions that you make. Um, a little bit about myself. My name is Steve Jagger. I'm one of the co-founders of Addy. Addy is an online real estate platform that enables everyone to invest in real estate for as little as a dollar. The most recent property we had on the platform was just recently wrapped up the other day, was a Chilliwack commercial property that had Starbucks as the tenant. Um, interesting, we have 833 BC residents that invested in that property. So it's kind of cool that these British Columbians are now part of a commercial investment and um, taking part in, in the, the landlording and distribution and property appreciation you know, benefits of property ownership. So we're excited to do that. The next property is coming onto the platform here very quickly. Um, but let's get to what we're here today to talk about. So I've got Rebecca Bly on the line with us and she's gonna chat with us a little bit about life as a city councilor, how she got into politics, I've known Rebecca for quite some time. She actually, you can see in her bio there, she took a job with a security business in Caresdale. That happens to be uh, Providence Security, which is my older brother's company, which is how we originally met. So I've known Rebecca for a long time and um, I'm excited to chat with her today about um, what she's been doing in her life and you know, the politics and life in politics. So maybe we can jump right, uh, right into it. Rebecca, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for uh, having me. No problemo. So maybe if we start at the beginning, um, your bio's got it there. You started at a small security company in Caresdale. Um, you were there for quite some time with, uh, with Provident, right? As a, a new mother when you started, is that right? Yes, uh, I started with um, Provident in 1999 um, and, uh, and I became a new mom in 2000. Um, so big, uh, big part of my, uh, life for sure. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And so you did the Provident thing for a whole bunch of years and then now you're besides your full-time, or I guess, it's, I don't know if they consider it full-time at the city council job, but you also are doing leadership development, mm -hmm. right? Is yes. that, is, how does that work from a timing point of view? I feel like city councilors full-time. It is a Vancouver City Council job uh, or um, position is certainly considered full time. Um, they say about thirty hours, but I would um, probably say some weeks that's double, and some weeks it's about thirty hours. So, um, but I do I do manage to work um, in the world of facilitation and leadership development. It's a passion of mine, as is Vancouver as a city. So I find a way to balance. But I I would say ninety percent of my time is spent in my council work nice and so before we jump over to the city council what do you do in this uh in this leadership development how does that work is it helping companies is it helping individuals um it is a bit of both um leadership development is sort of the growing uh one of the fastest growing departments within organizations and um because it takes a sort of skill set in terms of content design and delivering um programs that drive results and results that are oftentimes um synonymous with the company's culture and objectives um a third party organization is often brought in to help 
um, drive that part of the work under a typical people and culture or human resources department. So I uh, come in as that third party facilitator. Uh, right now I work with Virtus. You probably know Mike Desjardins, which is, yep. uh, yeah. And uh, they have a fantastic progressive organization that's doing some really awesome work. And so I'm really excited to be able to work with them uh, on a part-time basis while doing the council work. That's cool. And so when the, like a, a, a company comes to them, do they pick you or does Virtus management pick you or how did, like, how do you get assigned to a specific company? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it is uh, sort of driven through Virtus. So they have a good sense of their facilitators, their strengths, their styles, and then they get that sense from the new client and they sort of match us up. But once we are assigned a new organization to work with, we are pretty consistent in terms of facilitating their programs ongoing. Right. And do you, do you ever get blocked because you're a city councillor where you say, I can't work with that type of company or because that company's trying to do something with the city? You're just like, I can't, I can't be involved. Yeah. Um, sort of a hot topic right now, but um, I have to be very, very uh, careful about um, any conflict of interest and have ex um, turned down uh opportunities over the last couple of years out of an abundance of caution um that didn't necessarily materialize and wouldn't have been a conflict but just to be very careful about it i've i've opted out of those um contracts contracts yeah mm -hmm. right okay and so what you decide to step into politics you're in your first term right what if can you back up a, a few steps of just like how do you decide to do that my opinion it, like politics is hard the, the world really dives into the politicians' personal lives. It's just, it, it, there's no real, I don't know, it just seems really intense for politicians of all stripes on all levels that, uh, you know, the, your, your personal world and who you are is really gets put out there in the media. Um, like, how do you decide this, is, this seems like a good idea, I'm going to go ahead and do this? What, what drove you to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of like parenting. I make lots of... Uh... Um, comparisons with being a city councillor and being a parent in the sense that it's difficult to ever turn it off but also they don't really tell you all of the dark sides of being a parent the challenges and the things that we go through as parents and it's the same with politics because I don't think anybody would run to be quite honest if they actually knew the entirety of the ins and outs so there's a certain leap of faith but I think generally speaking um, I have, uh, it's actually, I would say that it's um, having worked with Providence Security at, um, for about 15 years at such a young age, there was a high um, um, degree of, uh, or, in, or what am I trying to say here? Um, a high level of uh, importance put on offering some value back to the community. And I did spend a lot of formative years working under that sort of mandate. Um, and, and I see the great value of that. So when I left working with Providence, I continued to um, activate in my community and my kids' schools, uh, traveled to uh, Ethiopia and Mozambique and worked in conservation education projects. Um, so I just had a, I had a, I think an innate sense of my own um, um, commitment to working in community and trying to improve things. Um, I also saw a, a real divisiveness that was coming out of the previous administration and, and that became, that was sort of my why that was more important than protecting myself from all the things that you mentioned, the personal life, the difficulty around politics and just saw that I think that I could come to the table and bring some harmony to some of those divisive 
topics and policies. And that's what I continue to push for now. Yeah. And so what, when you decide to, to make a run at it, was it always for city? Like you can consider provincial or it was always like oh, I'm, city council is where yeah. I want to go. That's where I want to start, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can say that, um, uh, there was always that door was opened. I'm a, my good friend, Kirk LaPointe, who ran as the mayoral candidate for the NPA. Um, I've known Kirk for many years and he was considering a run in 2018 and asked if I would uh, sort of join his team, his slate, consider local politics and um, talked about all the things he wanted to get up to. And they were quite, um, um, they sort of spoke to the ways in which I think the city needs that kind of leadership. So, um, and so I sort of stepped into it and he actually stepped out. So that was a funny turn of events. Um, and after some consideration, of course, decided I would continue to pursue this. So that's, I mean, I think we all have doors that open up for us and it's whether or not we step through it. Um, so. Right. And so then you, I did. yeah, you obviously did. Yeah. So you <laughs> end up running through or with the NPA, right? And so That's how right. did, how did mm -hmm. that, did you, was there ever a time where you would have all like gone independent or at the beginning you were, you know, the, the idea of aligning with a party was the, the most logical way to make it, make it all happen. Is that fair to say, or did you consider just going independent from the beginning? No, I, I knew that I would run with a party. Um, you know, Kirk, of course, uh, ran under the MPA. And as that introduction happened, I got to know some of the um, pre-existing to now board members and really believed in a lot of what they were um, um, endeavoring to achieve in that election. And, um, and you know, I, I took the name of the party quite literally uh, in that it's a nonpartisan association. Um, I would say now we see more partisan politics coming out of um, all parties, generally speaking. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who can commit to a team and really push that sort of bigger um, value system. Uh, it's just the values, um, I think, quickly changed with the MPA um, within this first couple of years. And so I went independent. Right. And so can you maybe explain how that, how that happened? Like what, uh, what changed for the people that don't know or follow <laughs> it too closely, what changed in the MPA to make you step away from the party? Yeah, I, absolutely. So I, um, I went, uh, I won't get into the nitty gritty, but what happens is there's AGMs every year, of course, an NPA um, membership or any party membership shows up to the AGM and elects their new board. And right after um, that election in 2018, and unfortunately we did not get our mayoral candidate across the line, uh, I think we were sort of vulnerable and open to a bit of a takeover. And there were some um, very organized, but far, I would say on the right side of even conservative, uh, some of them, um, uh, who were pretty organized and ready at that AGM and they were voted to the board and actually had the majority of the support on the board. So it's a 15 member board. There were five members that worked very hard in our campaign in 2018 who were also on the board, but they were in the minority. So what happened is some of the, um, more alt-right conservative folks were also then elected by their own board into executive positions. So fundraising, membership, president, um, and treasurer. Um, so 
that's basically what happened and how the MPA has changed over the last couple or the last two years. And those five members that worked so hard on our campaign have actually just recently resigned from the board because it's just an untenable situation. Wow. And so what do you think happened? So you, you stepped away from the MPA before we get to that. What, what, where does the MPA go? What do you think happens to the party? Isn't it the oldest party in the city? Isn't that their? Yes. Headline? Yes. They've been around, I think over 81 years um, was the last uh, date check that I heard. Um, and so I'm sure they've been through this before, but they are, their, their mandate is socially progressive and fiscally responsible, which I fully align to. Um, but I think they're more social conservative now uh, from a board direction. So we're hearing uh, media releases and different communications come out from the board and it's definitely has a, a more aggressive uh, partisan um, tone to them. So, so, you know, I don't know what the future of the MPA holds. I think that, like I said, they've probably been with this through this before and it really does matter about the leader and who, who the leader is. Um, but as you say, I don't know that the membership across the city is really paying all that close of attention and that typically happens within um, an election year. So it'll be interesting to see where they go. Right. And so you decide you don't align anymore with the NPA and the board and sort of what they're doing and you decided to step away um, from the party? Yes, well, I mean, I would say that it happened very quickly. They were elected to the executive on Monday and by Friday, rather than sort of framing it in terms of stepping away, I would say that I stood up for inclusion. Um, a number of their members um, were, uh, well, first of all, actively ran against the MPA, uh, including a male candidate. And uh, a number of those folks also ran under parties that uh, were anti-SOGI, um, SOG123 is the program sexual orientation gender identity that's in schools and they fought hard to try and get that taken out of schools right. um, and and sort of these traditional family values is what the catchphrase is for um, a, a very sort of socially conservative um, and for 2020 in the city of Vancouver not likely to be successful on its own it doesn't yeah it doesn't really resonate <laughs> No, but it, it was important. It was an important decision, I believe, to stand up for our um, um, LGBTQ two plus community and trans community and for inclusion in general. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So obviously no looking back, happy with the decision. It's, you know, you're independent. You're the only independent now counselor, correct? That's right. And so does that, when you... This is, I think, always a question people wonder is if you're, when you're with the NPA, are you pushed to sort of vote along the party lines or have you always kind of been able to do whatever you want and so being independent hasn't totally changed? What's the difference? Yes, I, uh, it was one of my first questions I had asked uh, the board when deciding to run is how do we make decisions as a caucus and of course there are some pretty clear decisions around fiscal responsibility that I think we were very aligned on and consistent on. Um, but other one off decisions that we were um, making, they wanted us to bring our own experience, our own critical thinking, our own perspective to that decision making and um, that that happened and I still do that. So, and I'm still fiscally responsible. So my uh, colleagues around the council table, including the MPA caucus, um, those of us that typically vote together around fiscal responsibility still do so. So nothing, it hasn't really changed. 
right. in, that, in that sense, yeah. Except that you're just, you know, now I guess independent and doing your thing, but the, the way you vote hasn't technically changed. It, it's not like it's giving you more freedom. No, yeah. no, exactly. I feel I have the same freedom. Gotcha. So can you tell us a little bit about like what is, you know, life as a public servant? What is that, what is that like? How does that, how does that work? How has it changed your world walking around the city? Does it, you know, are there, what are the challenges that come with, with being a public servant? Uh, yeah, great question. I, um, I, going back to the parenting, um, sort of an analogy is, um, is that as the city council, you're never turned off. You're never turned off from that uh, feeling of responsibility, engagement. Um, and I do remember when I was first elected, driving through Vancouver and having just being very aware of a very different sense of my own um, outlook on the city and the work that we have to do and that we have to continue to do. Um, so being a city councilor is a interesting job. We do a lot of uh, decisions. Um, we make a lot of decisions around uh, land use policy, of course, which is a which is a big part of the job and public hearings and going through projects and weighing, you know, benefit um, and um, and so yeah, I mean, I I can just say that every single thing that we see pop up, especially in the city of Vancouver, that's dealing with so many complex issues, I I form an opinion, I research and read about in order to have an informed perspective um, but there really isn't any box that we're in as a local government it seems that we are to consider the unintended consequences of every decision we make so there's a lot of engagement at that level gotcha and so uh, and for anybody out there in zoom or in uh, facebook land if you've got any questions you can throw them into the chat um, or in the comments on facebook and i can ask those questions for you but um so it seems to me from the outside looking in on the city, the city's obviously got lots of COVID related problems, financial issues because of COVID dealing with, you know, what, whatever the, the new rules and changes are, how society is going to work as we continue to go forward. But it, it seems that the two big things that the city of Vancouver has been dealing with for years are affordable housing and then the opioid crisis. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, I don't know how you'd, um, how you think about maybe the the opioid crisis first is like do you what do you think about that is there does it it obviously it seems to obviously tie a little bit into the housing problems but there's i think there's a lot more to it than just housing affordability that uh, that makes it so difficult for a lot of people in the, in society how do you how do you think about that and, and ways to i don't know solve it is that the the opioid crisis yeah the opioid crisis yeah um, well, I think there's a few things. There's the uh, mental health and addictions um, lens, so um, that we that we need to consider. There's the housing lens, but I also think there is um, we we are working with a population that feels systemically let down, and so we have to look and see. Well, when did that start? And uh, we're in now a provincial election. Um, you know, countdown. And I'm looking to um, platforms that are going to really speak to the, the, um, that origin story around why people fall through the cracks in our society. And I believe one of those is related to housing, secure mm -hmm. housing as young people. So their parents, their families, but also around education. And 
so many um, stories of kids that fell through the cracks in the public school system, um, whether it's because of learning disabilities, lack of engagement, not having their needs met, not having a support system at home. Um, so I think we have to start there at one end of the spectrum is to look at what is that systemic root, root cause. And then the other is around how do we manage what's happening right now, which is a poison drug supply. Right. And um, so I'm a believer in safe supply. Um, I think that if we were able to give people access to um, safe drugs, clean drugs, and in a measured way that isn't uh, stigmatized around um, the medical system, then they have a greater chance of having a sense of their own autonomy and um, their own agency. And I've spoken to drug addicts that have slowly um, reduced their consumption because they've had access to safe supply on uh, a very um, varying degree and through some pilot programs that have been ongoing in the city. So now we just need to commit and roll it out uh, in a robust way. And we have plenty of anecdotal stories and also research to say that this is what works. Because what we know is what ha we have been doing does not work. And abstinence is part of that. It works for some, but not everybody. Mm -hmm. But also criminalizing drug use doesn't work. And we just know that now. So we need to be, and I, I think what the federal government needs and the provincial government is to know that everybody's on side because it becomes a political issue. And um, so, that's what I'm focusing on. But as a local leader, we just need to show those senior levels of government that we support that. Yeah. And um, I do, I do, I am on the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. I think unless you're in politics, very few people know what, that that even exists, but it's essentially a lobbying organization um, that I was appointed to by the mayor. And we work with other municipalities right across the country and lobby the federal government. And Safe Supply has been a big part of my role there um, to, to push that forward because we think that all of these levels of government are, are sort of detached from everyday lives of Canadians, but they're actually listening. And so it's really important that we endorse and, and help push um, these important policies along. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, that's great because you're right. It's, 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 it's obviously a much larger problem than the city of Vancouver. It's you, you need you need the provincial and you need the federal governments um, involved because it's it's just so much larger than one specific city. So if we flip over to the other side of the other you know large problem in this in this city is a, affordable housing. I, I heard you on um, on another uh, podcast a few I guess a few weeks ago talking about how you think about affordable housing in kind of a threefold. Um, issue around the housing crisis, affordability crisis, and, a, and the livability crisis. Could you maybe explain a little bit about each of those and why you think of them in three unique ways or three different ways? Absolutely. Um, yes. So we talk about a housing crisis, but as we've just discussed, some folks that have housing doesn't necessarily have the right kind of housing that they need. Um, so we do have a housing crisis, but I think what we have is um, a, a quite a, we have a lot of supply of housing that people can't necessarily afford. So then we talk about an affordability crisis. And so we have to look and see well, what's, what's the barrier to affordability when it comes to housing. And part of that um, 
is the right supply. So now we're moving into rental housing. But when we look at rental housing, land is super expensive in Vancouver, as we know. And we're seeing projects come before council where we're looking at a three bedroom unit. The, the projects are being um, um, promoted, I guess, as a family oriented. And these three bedroom units are about 800 square feet. So when we talk about livability, I mean, you have kids, Stephen, I have, kids, I'm not sure how we would have managed an 800 square feet. We are, I'm a renter. I've been renting in the city for a long time and have had very stable um, a rental property um, accommodation, which is great. I know that's not the same for everybody, <clears throat> but um, we have to be really cautious about how new development impacts old housing stock and making sure that the new normal is not $3,900 a month for a rental unit at 800 square feet for a three bedroom that families are in. It's not to say that that's not doable. We just have to consider it. Um, so we're looking forward to uh, new policies where we can look and see how do, we, how do we increase housing supply, the right kind of supply, which also includes social housing. And when we talk about affordability, um, the average income of Vancouverites actually under 80,000 a year. So when you think of how much of your income should be dedicated to housing, many pay 50%. But we have a 30% um, housing, um, sort of uh, housing price to income limits, essentially. Oh, I'm very sorry about that. Um, and so we need to look and see how do we build housing for that bracket of folks that are earning under 80,000 a year so that their housing costs are around 30%. And um, I would say that it's up to us as a local government to work with the industry, the development industry, to figure out what's the best plan to be able to deliver that. And how, we're not quite there. How do you and how do you think about that with like rent controls or by just build, 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 build to, to bring up the amount of supply to drop the, the rental price? Well, it's interesting that you say that. I just had a conversation with Michael Mortensen. Uh, he's a UBC professor and, you know, a very a sort of... Um, uh, loud and, and knowledgeable uh, academic around the supply and demand, and he's all for supply. But I did ask the question the other day of him, um, if the land costs a certain amount of money and the developer has to build to a certain pro forma in order to get the lending from the bank, if we simply build a lot more of that, they can't possibly um, just pay less or just expect less rental income. So I'm not totally bought into the supply narrative yet. Um, I have a follow-up conversation with Michael to understand his uh, position on that because the argument that I've heard back is, well, our population is gonna grow. So to me, that means that increasing supply is not actually gonna bring down costs and increase affordability. We're just gonna have more um, rental stock, which we need, but we need to do it in a really thoughtful way. Right. And so when you when you think about that, when it comes to like single family houses, there's obviously a lot of or at least there seems to be on Twitter and whatnot of chatter around single family housing uh, zoning as a problem. Do you do you think that is do you think there's space and there's room in a city to have single family or do you think like over the long haul Dunbar looks like Yale Town in 40 years? Uh, well, no, I, I first of all, I think that um we need to look at the neighborhoods as um, their own, um, you know, by design. 
neighborhoods first and foremost. So there isn't just sort of a blanket suite and we build a bunch of condos so that everything looks like Yale Town. I think Yale Town's great because it looks like Yale Town and it yeah. is Yale Town, not because it's everywhere. And I think that goes for Gastown or any other neighborhood in the city in Mount Pleasant. But it's very, very clear that we need more creative infill style housing in our um, single family neighborhoods, single family, which can be called exclusionary zoning at times where because we have to admit that that zoning came in when they said well we don't want certain people living in our neighborhood so this is how we're going to build it yeah. so we do you know and none of us really want to live like that in 2020 so we have to look and say okay that's how that happened but how do we adopt and adapt new policies so that we're not railroading through neighborhoods and losing what makes them special and unique to the whole yeah. city yeah, it makes sense. Like, yeah, there's definitely people talk about neighborhood character, and it's just a, a nicer way to say we're sticking with single family. Um, yeah. You know, zoning. And I would say, in neighbor neighborhood character is people, people character. A house is just a house, and the full you put people in it. So, um, I think you know we need to not dismiss the fact that if there are amazing homes with all this character, and there's no life in that neighborhood then what's the value? So we need to make sure people can live in them. And um, we know that we need more housing options. So um, single family neighborhoods need to be up for this conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. Where I live, I, I would like to see more density. Our little league, mm -hmm. our little kids, our little league is getting smaller every year for baseball because it's just, there's less of the little guys cruising around. Um, and businesses are really struggling. And Vancouver has, um, uh, you know, the unique feature of Vancouver are these amazing high streets with um, independent businesses and Vancouver-born businesses, and they need people to be able to survive. And as the city becomes more and more expensive and costs go up, we're seeing more and more businesses have to close because they're just not, there isn't the density there. Yeah, there's not enough people to keep them alive. That's right. Yeah, I see that. So um, I saw the mayor put out the... Uh, this new initiative called, you know, Making Home, it's kind of ties into this, it seems uh, from a high level, maybe you want to explain it, but it, people can, in theory, they're going to test the idea of building four to six units on a single family property. Is that, is that right? right. How's, so, how's that going to work? So single, well, it's, it's not clear yet how it's going to work. The idea is there and the motion by the mayor is to have staff come back. Um, in next spring with a plan of how it would actually work. So the jury's out on whether or not this would actually pencil out for builders. Um, those are the people that we need to actually build the housing. Uh, we create the policy, but we don't do the building. So we need to make sure that we're working with industry to make to, to um, have a plan that works and is viable. Because we're going to put a lot of staff time into something that if it turns out it has no uptake, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we need to look at the plan like that. But the plan itself is, as you say, four to six stratified units on a single family lot. Some people would argue we have a lot of that in Upper Kitsilano um, in the multi-unit family dwellings. So mm -hmm. I have yet to get an answer um, from the mayor directly about how this is different from that, other than the fact that if you uh, receive six um, units, in terms of um, the zoning, two have to be at below market. So when we talk about that through 30% of income, housing income limits, um, two of those units will have to meet that um, threshold. 
And so how do they, like, from your meaning from a sale point of view or from a rental point of view? Uh, likely rental. So perhaps four are stratified units and two are rental or below market um, strata. And so, again, we don't have the actual numbers penciled mm -hmm. out. It's, right. Yeah. But there would be some idea of some sort of covenant on it or whatever. So it, it remains below market so people can buy In perpetuity. it. Perpetuity. But mm -hmm. they're, uh, yeah, they're locked in. So when they're done with it or move on, the next person is also coming in under market. Yes. Whatever. whatever yeah, and we have a, a missing middle motion that's come forward by another councillor, and so the mayor's working with that. Um, I had um, questions, that motion came forward a few months ago, so I had some questions around stratifying or subdividing large single-family lots so we can build some tiny homes. I've spoken to a number of young people who have left the city and bought on the island or Squamish or places like that, and uh, as a single person or a couple, they are investing in these sort of neat uh, tiny homes um, as a choice of where they want to live and they would rather have stayed in Vancouver and had the option to be able to buy uh, a plot of land a very small plot of land in order to have that sense of land ownership and home ownership and with Addy Invest of course you see the value in that because you've got hundreds of people wanting to buy a few shares of those properties because there's a sense of um, connection and value and that you're building something that um, is for your future yeah 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 for us we're just trying to redefine how you know what home ownership looks like where we think right. you can you know own small slices of other you know other properties and maybe you happily rent where you rent and you're happy there but this way you can be involved in the market and not feel outside of the the real estate market completely um so i'm getting a handful of questions from people but i've got a couple more for you and then i'll i'll ask you these uh, these ones that are coming from the group but um so there's kind of two plans that are happening with the city, right? There's the Broadway plan, which is in the mm -hmm. works, and then there's the city plan, which I believe is also in the works. Um, for, the, for the Broadway plan, can you talk about like what you think it, it, it should be like or will be like? And you know, is, is it, are we gonna get a whole bunch of density on the Broadway corridor? Is it, you know, how are they gonna re, redesign? I think it's an amazing opportunity to redesign what Broadway the street actually looks like. Um, and the walkability of Broadway, I think it's going to be, if they do it, it would be very cool because right now it's, it's like a highway. It's you know, a, lot, a lot of cars yeah. and it's not, it's, it's not the street that you'd walk down like Maine or Fraser or something else that sort of has transitioned. What, what do you think about the, the Broadway plan and where it should go? Um, yes, thanks. That's a, another great question. Um, we are undertaking the Broadway plan that's going to be uh, brought back to council. I would say with COVID, it's, delayed by a few months. It was to be at the end of this year, but perhaps in the beginning of next year. Um, but you're right around the vision. So active transportation, multimodal, we've got the opportunity with the Broadway subway coming in um, to increase density and look at transit-oriented development, um, which in and itself are, are national policies actually right across the country. Um, that are that are starting to um, develop and we've done a lot of that we've seen um, in different parts of the region but i think really the opportunity is to um broadway is i don't have the exact numbers but moves sort of the most amount of people in your average day not right now we're in the middle of a pandemic but in your average day you know one of the the highest traffic corridors uh in the country in the country i believe yeah I've in the that. country 
Yeah, a longest stretch. So there's clearly an opportunity to make um, Broadway a real um, center point for Vancouver. And I think that means increasing development. Um, but with the Broadway plan, here's a perfect example of when we're talking about um, you know, single family zoning and land use policy. The Broadway plan can create its own land use policy. So we can get out of um, a very slow and delayed um, process around public hearings by sort of setting a new status quo in terms of height and density for Broadway. Um, and then of course, anything that wants to come in above that, we would have to consider very carefully um, through a public hearing process. So there's an opportunity to increase density, to create a, a better shopping experience, a better business center, to leverage the Broadway subway, to look at active transportation, to reduce the amount of cars on the road, um, because people see that as a great way of getting from A to B, um, as they do right now. That's awesome, yeah. And then for the, the city plan, the city is also working on a, a similar idea, but for the, the city itself? Right, so we're doing, um, we're, one of our first motions was to initiate a citywide plan. We've now renamed the Vancouver plan. And um, to all of those that are uh, uh, connected to this, this conversation right now, I really encourage people to get involved. We do tend to hear from the same voices at council. Um, and it's time, this is an opportunity for us to hear from others. And people getting involved in civic issues isn't always a natural um, sort of tendency. And, but this, is what, this one is really important, especially if you have uh, young families and your kids, you want them to stay in the city or see themselves as an opportunity to be here and be in the city is to get involved. There's um, from, from seniors, all demographics, kids, um, looking at all of our uh, citywide land use policies is an opportunity to look and see, well, what is it that we want to do? So when we're talking about miss missing middle housing, there's a huge opportunity to bring the city together around one central plan that we haven't had since the 50s. Um, when the first um, Bartholomew plan was um, established. So Van, Van Plan, and it has its own website, here I'm doing my pitch, my, uh, is to get involved in no matter what, um, there's, a, there's a place for your voice to be at that table. And does the, does the Vancouver plan supersede the Broadway plan? Like, does, it seems to make sense that the Vancouver plan should be first and Broadway would fit into it. Is that, or is it gonna go the other way? Yes, um, I would say the one thing that I've learned certainly my first two years is very little is linear in politics. And so we have to um, be able to continue growth and development while also working on broader plans. I think one thing we have done over the past 10, 15 years is create neighborhood plans. So Grandview Woodland neighborhood, West End neighborhood, um, we've developed right across Canby corridor we've seen. So it's time to bring all of those plans together. So you're right. Broadway plan essentially will be delivered before the Vancouver plan, but is contemplated in the Vancouver plan um, as one that comes in underneath that umbrella. Awesome. Awesome. So um, thanks again for doing this. I've got a, a handful of questions from, uh, from people that are listening on the, uh, on the internet here. If you guys have any more, just throw them in the chat and I can ask Rebecca for you. But this first one is interesting. It's kind of a twofold question. It's like, can you define what missing middle means? And did we build too many condos? I guess specifically condos. Yes. So um, missing middle uh, 
so first of all, I'm going to add, answer the second question. I think we bought too, uh, we've built too many condos and we continue to build condos, but I think it's goes without saying, um, and perhaps there's people in your audience that would uh, relate to this is oftentimes these stratified projects help um, fund rental projects. Rental projects are very hard to build and financially don't make sense all the time. And so we need some of the stratified development within one builder's portfolio in order to um, build the rental that we need. The missing middle is really about, again, that um, income bracket. So, and I would say for the missing middle, we might extend that to 150,000. So for, you know, um, local firefighters, teachers, people that work in our businesses that maybe make a living wage, but are not necessarily um, uh, in that higher income earner bracket. And because of the cost of land and what's happened in Vancouver over the last 30 years plus, um, we've really priced a lot of people in that let's say 50 to $150,000 income range out of the housing market. And I think also we've been slow to respond. So um, we know, you know, I have a 20 year old daughter. She's a really good job. Uh, she's making, you know, 40 plus thousand a year uh, as a vet tech, but she couldn't possibly, um, she actually is struggling to find something that she could afford to live in, in Vancouver as somebody who's making a living wage. And uh, so she continues to live with us. But she wants to move out. We want her to move out. You know, like <laughs> that's the thing that you should be doing. <laughs> um, but I can see her struggle around mm -hmm. it. So, and even in our, um, as we increase rental supply, those one bedroom units are still $1,800 a month. So when you're making three grand a month, that's, that's mm -hmm. too much. And so the missing middle, that's how we would define it. Right. Yeah, I remember um, listening to the fire chief a, a while back talking about mm -hmm. um, if Vancouver, I guess when Vancouver gets hit with its big earthquake and, you know, bridges are down and whatnot. And his, his point was like a lot of Vancouver firefighters don't live in Vancouver. And if that big disaster does happen, we've got really one shift of people. And if we have trouble getting the second shift in because there's a problem with transportation, um, they can't you've got like whatever shift you've got on is is the shift for some some period of time and he was basically tying it to the housing affordability of that a lot of the firefighters do not live um in the city that they're they're working in which is obviously yes. a bit of a bit of a problem we think about it in in our world of addy of of um maybe we we can be offering a product where we're buying specific properties near hospitals or near certain things and then choosing to have a lower return for our investors because we're going to choose to rent to a specific type of person. So it's like this one is hospital workers or school teachers right. that, that need, want to live in the area and be a school teacher at that, you know, the, the neighborhood school. And maybe there's a way we can, um, you know, mobilize the community around offerings like that. And I think it, it resonates with our, with our crowd for sure. Um, I think one thing that you're hitting on and just to mention is that it comes down to education and it comes down mm -hmm. to conversations like this where we can be in dialogue. When we talk about consultation, it's not necessarily just hearing from the public, it's also educating the public on what's happening that maybe they don't see, um, maybe they do see, and having them weigh in on that rather than it being a one-way conversation. So that's important in my opinion, to, 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 to attempt to look at how we solve these issues. Yeah, yeah. So I just got a, a question popped in, it says, um, there seems to be an obsession for politicians to show that any new policy doesn't result in a land lift, which is the, you know, the price of the land going up. 
but without mm -hmm. a land lift, uh, there's no incentive to build. Why would, why would anybody provide new supply if they don't make money doing it? Is this, how do you think about that? Well, um, so I am not a city councillor or a person who thinks profit is an unreasonable expectation. Um, I, it's what makes sense. Um, and so for, for builders to come to the table and um, show their numbers and be able to show that they have a certain amount of, um, look, at the end of the day, we need builders to build the product yeah. that the city needs. So it's about working together and it's not about vilifying people who make a profit. Um, they're doing that and they're in an, they're in an industry that takes an enormous amount of risk. And if it doesn't work out, it's city councilors. They're not coming to ask, asking for help. They've taken that risk mm -hmm. and they know that. And I think with that comes um, the reward of profit. Um, and I think that that it does have to come back to what, what makes sense though, that we're not trying to get the maximum amount of density out of every single project. I think that steers us off into a different conversation. So it's like, let's be realistic and pragmatic about the fact that profit is not a bad thing. I'm a conscious capitalist. I believe that uh, capitalism is an important piece of our society and the fact that it, it does fund a lot of, through taxes and other ways, um, the way that we support our vulnerable population. So it makes sense. Um, this whole anti-profit with developers is is less interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I don't think a lot of people, especially sort of the louder ones that you hear on the internet or whatever, saying, you know, the big bad developer, I don't think they realize the amount of risk these people take to make things happen. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe a new policy comes in, like they, you know, a tax or something they weren't expecting can change the, the whole thing. Or COVID comes in and can wipe out a whole development where they just can't, like they, right now, it's wiping out small developers that can't withstand the delays. Um, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a high risk game that they're playing. So I agree, they, they need to make money. Dan in, this, in, his, in his second part of his, it's not really a, a question, I guess. He's just saying the Broadway line is an example of a massive in, infrastructure project that's gonna be built. Um, but all the land around it staying the same because the city wants to take 100% of the, the land lift. Do you think, is that true? Or I guess we wouldn't know it's part of the Broadway plan or is that, is that what they're trying to do or thinking about doing? Um, well, I'm just sort of stay high level for, for that response in the sense that um, the city is in negotiations with through the Broadway plan, but also with builders on individual projects and rezonings and we have um, development cost levies and we take and we have CACs community amenity contributions and and so there is um, some um, criticism I would say from the industry that that process is not as transparent as it should be mm -hmm. and we as council are certainly speaking to staff about how do we make that more consistent more transparent if you go on the city of Quitlam's website there's a formula of how you can calculate the CAC and it's actually on the website and I think anyone who's listening who's a builder will be nodding their head right now saying Vancouver does not have that it's very um, it, it can be it can seem very convoluted and complicated mm -hmm. and at the end of the day lacks transparency and we see that with the East Fraser lands um, development that had a number of CAC commitments that have not materialized in schools or community centers uh, and those various amenities and so there's a lot of criticism coming back um, on that and so we are, we're having to push that through and of course that was before our term but 
with government, you inherit a lot of decisions that were made before you and you have to deal with that. Right. So conscious of time, um, I've got a couple, couple more. This one, uh, maybe it's going to be a <laughs> quick one. Is who's your favorite counselor? Is the is what Susan's asking. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about your favorites. Um, that is such an interesting question, and I am surprised I've never actually had that question before. Um, who's my favorite counselor? You know, I'd say I have learned, um, I have a good relationship with Counselor Pete Bry, and he shares all similar values um, around, not necessarily development, so per se, but um, society and um, and we connect on, on a number of those issues, fiscal responsibility. Um, of course, he's with the Green Party, um, but, but also just, you know, politics is a very dehumanizing process and we can do that also to each other um, and make a bunch of assumptions about where people are coming from. And um, that hasn't happened in my uh, working with and collaborating with um, Pete to be specific. But generally speaking, we have a really, uh, even though it looks to the public, I think is not super um, efficient or um, working together. I, I'd say that we have in a minority government, we spend a lot of time trying to listen to one another and hear each other's priorities and then find some consensus there. And that's a value that um, I share, I'd say with Councilor Pete Fry, but with, other, with others as well. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, this one's about public spaces, patios, the, the, you know, the city <clears throat> allowed these restaurants and whatnot to expand into park, uh, you know, city parking and whatnot. I, I personally love them. I think it's a great idea. Um, do you think with the sort of the future where we're going and, and COVID and how the, this is all going to play out, do you think the city's going to build or focus on more kind of permanent public spaces like that? We obviously get a lot of rain in Vancouver, and, and so some of these parklets aren't going to work when it's really, you know, doing its thing in November and December. But do you think, like I lived in Singapore for a while, and it, like there's tons and tons of open air covered you know, places to eat and you, you order your food from a little, a little shop and you bring it over to this public area and that's where you, you eat. Do you think, you think that's the direction the city's going to push sort of through as, as we kind of figure out how this COVID's going to leave us? Yeah. So part of the Vancouver plan is to look at resiliency and recovery as well. So that folds into, is this a, is this a good direction um, and objective that we could embed within the Vancouver plan is more outdoor living. And as we talk about living spaces getting smaller and smaller, and evidently they're going to, on some level, people are happy to be outside socializing and spending time outside. Um, our climate is changing. So over the future decades, I think we're going to see uh, warmer and, and sort of drier stretches for longer periods of time, of course. Um, so right now we had the temporary patio program. It's been extended to go through the winter. So time will tell how we manage in the cold and the wet. Um, but I think, you know, COVID and this pandemic has really um, given us an opportunity to very quickly turn some policy around and give it a try. And right now we're getting a ton of great feedback. Even if people lose parking, they gain um, seats and they need that right now with physical distancing. So time will tell once the pandemic, uh, we get the, a handle on the pandemic over the next two years, if that's gonna um, keep going for the future. Cool. Um, I hope it does. The um, mm -hmm. I think they're yeah, I think they're great, but they just could be yeah readjusted for a more permanent and winterized solution for our for our wetness. Yeah, some of them have very uh, 
were set up very quickly. So yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. some more permanent structures would make them obviously a lot better. Yeah, and, and even the city closing some of the like streets that. is really great, right? Yeah. Like they're the bigger yeah. than just the parklet, but closing some of the weird little small streets, I think it's been awesome. Yes, I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. Cool. So uh, almost at the hour, my kind of final question of, of the day is what, uh, so what's, what's next? Um, you're going to run again. Do you run as a counselor? Is there, are you going to do the mayor thing? What, uh, where do you, where are you going from here? Um, definitely going to run again. I think that, um, it's challenging and there would have to be a very significant reason for me not to run again in terms of being able to see the work that we've gotten started on through and four years is not a lot of time for that kind of, um, change and evolution. So I'm definitely going to run again. Um, and one thing I've learned is that, you know, five minutes in the political world can seem like a year. So things change very, very quickly. Um, I'm clear on where the city is going in my perspective and what the city needs in a leader. Um, and I'm not sure that I would know any obvious candidates yet that have fully either articulated what they're up to um, or have demonstrated that that vision that I see for that top job, the mayor, bringing the city together and being really engaged and really accessible and really available and taking on really tough conversations and coming from a place of setting a clear pathway and a vision that people can get behind because it makes sense and it is um, and it, it's thoughtful and so um, yes that's what I see if and do I have ambitions to be the mayor not necessarily I have ambitions to just keep serving the city if it's in the capacity of mayor because that's the kind of leader that I think we need and I step up to do so then um, great then I will awesome well I appreciate you doing what you do and, and doing the, uh, the whole public servant thing um, as far as accessibility, how do, if people wanted to contact you, how, how best to do that? Uh, how, like, how would you like people to contact you? Um, yeah, so the city of Vancouver website, of course, has all of our contact info and, uh, email. And I know it probably seems like emails to city councilors goes into the abyss. Um, but I actually read them all and respond. Um, so my, uh, Rebecca Bly, Rebecca.bly at Vancouver.ca is my email address. And I'm on Twitter, Rebecca Lee with two E's, Bly, um, and direct message me or engage there. But no, I, I mean, people is why I do what I do. And it's a great honor to lead the city as a city councillor. So um, the more I get to chat with people, the better. Yeah, awesome. Well, I appreciate you doing this. I think you're doing a great job. And I agree with you. Like, you know, we, we need more people reaching out um, than just the, the specific few you guys always hear from. We need, you know, more, more opinions coming in. So again, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me.